0: And now, on Book TV's Afterwards, journalist Ben Westhoff reports on how labs in China manufacture fentanyl. He's interviewed by Democratic Congresswoman Ann McLean Custer of New Hampshire, the founding co-chair of the Bipartisan Opioid Task Force. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work.
1: Ben, great to be with you, and um, thank you for all your effort. What an incredible four years on Fentanyl Inc. And uh, let's let's dive right in. Um, my interest in this is that I come from New Hampshire, and I uh, started the bipartisan task force on the opioid epidemic. We've got a hundred members of Congress, half Republican, half Democrat, working together, and um, We've been hit very hard in our state. Uh, 471 deaths last year. But the mix of those is really changing. It's fentanyl, but it's, um, as you write about in your book, it's fentanyl mixed with cocaine, fentanyl mixed with methamphetamines. So, I want to just start off with a kind of big picture. What got you into this? What what gave you the incentive to spend four years of your life in this deep dive? And um, how how did you keep going with it? It was fascinating.
0: Well, I had a friend who died from fentanyl in 2010 before people were much talking about it, before I knew right. what it was. And But it wasn't until about four years ago I was... Um, a music journalist primarily then, and I was doing a uh, report on why so many people were dying at raves. Yes. So, yeah. these big electronic music bacchanals where there's, you know, tens of thousands of people partying, and then someone would always die, and the deaths would be blamed on ecstasy. And so, I had never heard of ecstasy being such a lethal drug before. And I found out that almost all of the ecstasy was adulterated. so It
1: had been mixed with other chemicals.
0: Exactly. So there was almost no real true ecstasy at all. It was all these new chemicals, these adulterants. And so I wanted to find out what these drugs were. And it turns out that there are hundreds of new drugs that I had never heard of, that most people had never heard of, all synthetic, all made in a lab, and almost all of them in China. And so I had heard about drugs coming from Mexico, places like Afghanistan or Colombia, but I had no idea that China was where all these new drugs were being made. And the most deadly of these drugs, I learned, was fentanyl. And that sent me on this quest to get to the source of the to issue. To try to
1: understand where it came from. What I thought you did such a fascinating job in your book, uh, Fentanyl Inc. was really describing this sort of infrastructure that developed. And one of the hearings we had had with the Drug Enforcement Agency They literally spoke about criminal chemists in China. Tell the story because you actually went there. How did you make the connections and what did you learn when you got to China?
0: The first thing that I learned was that buying drugs online is incredibly easy and you don't even need to go on the dark web necessarily, even just the clear web. And so I started Googling... The names of drugs like fentanyl and found these chinese labs selling them and all i did was just send them an email and pretending to be a drug buyer i had a fake email address and i asked if i was ever in china if i could visit their lab and some of these different chemists said yes wow so i so i went i went uh, early last year and what I found was pretty shocking. I was expecting something like an underground, seedy, environment. illicit environment. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But it wasn't like that at all. I was expecting something like you might a Mexican cartel or a Colombian cartel, but these were looked like legitimate businesses, really. This-
1: and and to some extent, you described that. They are legitimate businesses staying sort of one molecule ahead of law enforcement that's trying to schedule the drugs and make them illegal. Describe that process.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to fentanyl, that's banned in the U.S., banned in China. But there's all these little offshoots of fentanyl, and they're called analogs. And you can make an analog just by tweaking the chemical structure just a little tiny bit. And so for years, that's how these Chinese chemists have been staying one step ahead of the law. It's
1: incredible.
0: So whenever China banned one of these drugs, they would just tweak it slightly and then begin selling this new drug until it was illegal. So, so they were operating within the law, and that has only changed recently in May— when China agreed to ban all types of fentanyl, analogs, everything, even before they were invented, you know, even new ones that hadn't been yet invented. So.
1: And help to understand or kind of explain to the listeners, people here in the United States are buying the precursor chemicals to making fentanyl, and then they're mixing the ingredients before they're selling it in a retail capacity, uh, I one of you kept having these visuals that you could understand, and one was a coffee grinder oh, and yeah. using yeah. a coffee grinder to mix the substances, but then it seemed that's part of the risk that mm-hmm. um, can you can you help people understand just the lethality of Fentanyl and the small, small amounts, literally practically like grains of mm-hmm. sand yeah. that can be a lethal overdose that could kill someone. And if they yeah. don't understand when they're buying it, what the mix is, how, how does yeah. that work?
0: You've, you've hit on a really important point because heroin, like we said, it's grown from the poppy. It's a natural plant. But fentanyl is made in a lab and it's 50 times stronger. Mm. And so drug dealers will will not use pure heroin. They'll cut their heroin with fentanyl because it's a way to save money. It's so much cheaper to make. It's so much more powerful. The problem is that the the way they mix them together, like you said, is very, it's not precise at all. It's not scientific. So... These street dealers in St. Louis, one that I talked to, said that they would mix the heroin and the fentanyl using a Mr. Coffee grinder, you know, just the same thing, you'd grind up coffee beans. But the problem is you can't do it precisely, and so one dose might be pretty weak, but another dose might be so strong as to kill someone, and that's exactly why so many people are dying from fentanyl, from, from street fentanyl.
1: And one of the comments you were quoting people, because it does seem counterintuitive, if you think of this being a product that is literally killing the purchasers of the product, that doesn't sound like a very good business model. Yeah. But you quoted people saying they find out about a death and they'll want to get that batch because it's stronger. So yeah, help exactly. us understand
0: well, that. that.
1: Well, Is it the level of addiction that would cause someone to take that step? Or did you get more behind talking to the users and the high that they're chasing?
0: Well, for many long-time heroin Users they don't even get high anymore from heroin. All it does is it gets rid of their withdrawal symptoms. It gets them back to baseline. But with fentanyl, they can get high again. It's so much stronger. And so unfortunately what happens is when someone overdoses and uh, another addicted user hears about that, he or she doesn't say, well, I better stay away from that. They say, no, this must be a really powerful batch. I want that. To and get that euphoria again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a very unfortunate uh, aspect, aspect, of, aspect of, of this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think it's hard uh kind of to get to get your brain around. Certainly for policymakers, part of what our task force is about is trying to educate members of Congress from communities all over the country that are now dealing with this to understand um, kind of what the impacts are and how people are responding. The other part of the book that I thought was really fascinating was your take on the whole war on drugs and going back through the history of that, starting President Nixon, President Reagan, Uh Nancy Reagan, just say no... Talk about that a little bit, like what what your impression is of whether that approach has been successful.
0: Yeah, ever since I was a little kid, I've been hearing Just Say No and about the war on drugs. And I think, unfortunately, where we're at right now is that fentanyl is killing more Americans every year than any drug ever. So we've been through the crack epidemic, the meth epidemic, pills like OxyContin, that was the first part of the opioid crisis, the first wave, then heroin, the second wave, but fentanyl is the worst, It's killing the most people. And so to me, it's all evidence that the war on drugs is not succeeding. We um, helped take out Pablo Escobar, the famous Colombian cocaine kingpin, and and yet his death did nothing to slow... We're getting more cocaine from Colombia than ever before. There was El Chapo, who was imprisoned and tried recently, but it's not stopping the flow of drugs from Mexico at all. Locking people up, For small drug offenses, nonviolent drug offenses in the U.S. has been devastating for minority communities in terms of the money spent. And so to me, it's, it's the war on drugs isn't working.
1: To me, it really it's a public health issue at this point. And one of the issues that we're focusing in on is to understand that. People who are incarcerated do not get, typically do not get access to substance use treatment, any kind of addiction treatment, or even the underlying mental health or trauma that they might have been dealing with. And what we're looking at, the reason for that. 50 years ago, when Congress created Medicaid, Mm -hmm. they had an exclusion for people during incarceration. Mm. So their Medicaid coverage stops the day they go in, whether it's county jail, state prison, federal penitentiary. And for 50 years, all across this entire country, people haven't had sufficient health care and access to treatment. And then they come out, and we all act shocked, that they go back to their addiction and go back to their crime. And we live with these incredibly high recidivism rates of people going just back in and back in. And when you think about it, we're not surprised if they come out and they still have diabetes, you know. Uh And I keep talking with law enforcement saying, we're not going to arrest our way out of this, that it's a public health issue, so our legislation is to bring Medicaid and treatment for the underlying mental health issues and the substance use issues um, into our communities and into our jails and prisons. And we, that's, we're that's having great, some really great that's results. That's a great piece
0: of legislation. Yeah, there's, everything you're saying has completely been shown to be the case far as drug use and recidivism the what you mentioned before medication assisted treatment yes there's different names for it but these are this is a two-pronged approach that i'm sure you're very familiar with it's attacking the chemical problem the drug problem on the one hand and to do that using these sort of uh low opioids low level opioids like methadone yep uh, Suboxone, uh,
1: Suboxone. exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: And what these do is they help people sort of hopefully taper off from these really these really destructive opioids like fentanyl and heroin.
1: And, and they can literally quell the urge to take the other drug. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Opioid blockers. Yes. Yes. And and then at the same time, combining that with therapy. With uh, counseling, because what we found is that it's not just the drug often. In fact, in almost every case, there are personal problems that people have in their lives. Right. You know, They're out of work, they've got severe health problems, they've got personal issues, and if these things can be addressed in tandem, the, the, the ability for someone to get off even these strong drugs has been found to be pretty good.
1: One of the lines I wanted to quote at page 276, um, this is uh, one of the people working in this world of therapy, and she said, exclusively focusing on the chemical aspect also overlooks another important factor. Quote, 100% of my patients have experienced childhood trauma or have a mental health disorder, which are tied in. And it's interesting, that statistic, 100%. I was recently at the women's prison in New Hampshire, and uh, because they're starting to bring medically-assisted treatment and mental health therapy um, in-house and already having really profound results... And they told me 100% of the women incarcerated in New Hampshire have either uh, 75% are sexual assault in their lifetime and 25% um, uh, abuse and neglect in their childhood. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not treating the underlying mental health issues then you're really spinning your wheels in terms of trying to help someone um, get get over, you know, get past their addiction, get into treatment. And then what I keep telling people, long-term recovery. You know, it's mm-hmm. not a 28-day one and done yeah, proposition. I mean, that's, it's that's it's a big problem. there's a very high rate of relapse, and we need to recognize that's true for lots of different issues, healthcare issues. We don't say to a diabetic. I can't treat you. You just ate cake. We right. say that's a really difficult disease. How can we help you and your family? Because you really ought not to eat cake, right. you know. And we need to help you for the rest of your life because there's cake everywhere, and you can't have it, you know. And I think well, that's another uh, thing is there's, talk there's, about the harm reduction model that you talked about at the end.
0: Yeah. Well, um, as you know, New England is really where the opioid epidemic, and fentanyl in particular, kicked off. It was the worst a few years back, worse than anywhere else in the country. But the encouraging thing is that you've actually been seeing these deaths drop in New England in, in the last couple of years, even while they're still going up in places like Missouri, where I live. And unfortunately, the epidemic is heading west. yes. So that's so that's that's that something we have to, to 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 deal with. But but I was going to say about harm reduction in New England. There's been this incredible success with these the medication assisted treatment with um, the the Medicaid expansion yes. is helping a bunch it's of people.
1: Incredibly important for us. Yeah, we have a program that we call Safe Stations where you can. Walk right into a fire station in Uh Nashua or Manchester, New Hampshire, and without risk of arrest or incarceration, you can say, I need help. I have a health issue, which is addiction to, you know, substance use disorder with these opioids. And they will connect you with treatment and get you into treatment. It's hugely successful. But the Medicaid expansion is critically important. Of the first 100 people to walk through the door, it was like 95 or more were eligible for Medicaid expansion. So the reason they weren't getting the help that they needed is that they had no place to turn. We didn't have sufficient treatment capacity. The hospitals would not help them with the um, uh, getting past the um, detox, and, and that's the critical link. You know, you talked about how they're going to keep taking heroin so as not to go through
0: withdrawal.
1: withdrawal. Yeah. And to me, that should be, again, a public health issue. We should, They should be able to walk into any hospital and we should help them get through withdrawal, And one of the interesting things I've learned about the medically-assisted treatment is that in some cases you don't have to go through the withdrawal. You can get directly onto that medication, and then that will help you taper off your use.
0: Yeah, and then, of course, there's naloxone, uh, known as Narcan. Yes. And this is basically a miracle opioid reversal drug it's It's it's, it's something out of science fiction thousands of
1: lives It, it really is extraordinary
0: yeah and so there's in some states they've made it so you don't need to get a prescription to get it but it's really a matter of providing funding for firefighters first responders and even people like librarians because there's these situations now where People are passing out in library bathrooms, overdosing. It's an yep. epidemic across the country, it is. and librarians aren't trained to deal right. with these situations. But um, and they
1: need to have Narcan on hand, exactly. and, and family members do. Um, And I think that's one of the things, the families are so beleaguered, the communities are so exhausted from this. So talk a little bit about what you learned from Europe about this harm reduction model and how um, we can educate and and prevent uh, overdosing and, and people harming
0: themselves. Right. So I went to Spain and in particular Barcelona and there they have these, these facilities called supervised injection facilities. And what these places are, it's where addicted users can go in, they can get clean needles, and they can shoot up you know, heroin, fentanyl, whatever the drug, they can even smoke crack cocaine, they can do, do these drugs, and it's legal to do so inside the facility and they're watched over by trained medical staff, and so they've had. You know, it's 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 little outside the box, especially yeah. for Americans.
1: Are they offered um, addiction treatment? Yeah, mental health yes. treatment. Yes. Like, it's all it's, part of the
0: package? Because yeah. what
1: we have learned more and more about this, they call it a moment of clarity when someone is ready for treatment, ready for help, and. Uh, making that readily available to people so that they can take that step?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. And these centers, they tend to bring the addicted users out of the parks. You know, like in Barcelona, they had this scourge of needles in parks, and kids were stepping on them. They had these addicted users in the streets. But they're brought into these locations, and... They have them in Canada, they have a lot of them. In Europe, they have a lot of them. No one has ever died at one of these facilities. But in the U.S., they're banned. They're illegal. And there's been a number of cities that have tried to have them, including Philadelphia recently. But the the federal government has, has banned them. And I think it's something... We need to think about something else is called fentanyl testing strips.
1: Yeah, talk about that. I was fascinated by that. And these kits, were there fentanyl testing strips and Narcan and condoms?
0: Uh, they can condoms. test for, for any, yeah, these <laughs> yeah. are all part of uh, the harm reduction strategy. But And, yeah, the fentanyl testing strips in particular, these are kind of, in a way, they look like a pregnancy test. Yeah. And what what you do is you take your drugs, you don't know what's in it, it could be pure heroin, it could be heroin mixed with fentanyl, you don't know. So you mix it up in a solution, dip the strip in there, and if there's one stripe, that means that there is fentanyl, two stripes means there there isn't. And so what studies have found is that if people realize there's fentanyl in their drugs, and like you said, it can be mixed into anything, cocaine, meth, Pills, if people find fentanyl in there, they're less likely to take it and they're therefore less likely to overdose and die.
1: Well, you were talking about your friend in 2010. Um, For me, it was 2014, and a a young man uh, named Carl Messinger had graduated college, had come back to a small town in, in New Hampshire. And he was um, taking some extra courses. His father was a dentist, and he wanted to become a dentist. And his parents were aware that he had had a drug problem. He'd been to treatment and come back and was living with them. And what happened was he got a respiratory uh, a bad cold and went to get medication for the cold and... Unbeknownst to everyone, the doctor, the, the pharmacist, the parents, the, the young man, it was cough syrup with codeine. And the codeine created this drug-seeking behavior in him, and immediately he made a call to the heroin dealer. Mm-hmm. But what was delivered to him turned out to be 100% fentanyl, and mm-hmm. we didn't know anything about it at that point. His mother, who I got to know very well after this all happened, came home to find him literally dead on the bathroom floor with the needle oh, still in geez. his arm. And and you talk about that in the book. What that means is it's a lethal dose instantly. And what... What was it about the chemistry of fentanyl? You got way into the chemistry, oh, yeah. by the way. are you? Do you have any chemistry <laughs> no. background? No. You did a really good job. Thank I you. was having a hard time following the names. But um, what, what is it that makes this like a lethal dose and, and that you would literally die? And, and, of course, he didn't have any idea what he yeah. was
0: taking. Well, what's interesting about fentanyl is that it was... Created in the late 1950s by a Belgian chemist, and he wanted to create a better drug for use in hospitals, and he did. Uh, fentanyl was used in open heart surgery. Continues to be a very important drug for things like epidurals during childbirth, uh, for men getting colonoscopies are given fentanyl, and it. It still remains an important laboratory drug, Uh, excuse me, an important uh, uh, hospital drug, and also for people with cancer, end of life care, there's a patch, things like that. But what he didn't realize was that along the way, these rogue chemists, like the kind I describe in the subtitle, started going through the scientific literature that he and other drug chemists were publishing. So, so in the old days, if you were a scientist at a university, you published your paper, and it went into some you know university library, pretty obscure, hard to, to find. But in the internet age, all of these these uh, papers were published online.
1: And publicly available exactly. anywhere around the world.
0: Exactly. And so these rogue chemists became began looking for these files specifically for these papers to go through them and appropriate the chemical formulas to learn how to make these new drugs. And so they began exploding all over the Internet and made in Chinese labs, and, and these different types of fentanyl came about in this way.
1: Well, it was fascinating. Now, the other thing that I thought you that made the book very, very readable is you told these incredible personal stories. You met with families who had lost a loved one. Um, One of them was the death of Bailey Henke. Do you say Henke? That's right. Yeah, in um, Grand Forks, uh, North Dakota. Tell that story because it, it was fascinating, the interaction with law enforcement and um, sort of this incredible mystery, international mystery, to get to where how that all came about.
0: Yeah, well, Bailey was an 18-year-old kid. He had just graduated from high school. He had never tried fentanyl until he, he received it one night at a party, and it was stronger than anything he'd ever tried before. He he passed out and died. Um, his parents had no idea what fentanyl was. Nobody did. This was 2015. Right. And Grand Forks is a pretty small, you know, fairly conservative place. And I talked to the mayor of the town, and he said, we, we don't think of ourselves as a place where we have this big drug problem. But there were more fentanyl deaths, and the community realized they had to take strong action against this problem. And so they adopted a bunch of these really forward-thinking, harm-reduction approaches. So North Dakota, for example, passed, uh, it's called the um, Good Samaritan Law. And basically that means that if you're with someone who dies from a drug overdose, you're allowed to call the police and the the ambulance without fear of criminal prosecution. Interesting.
1: Yeah, so, because th- typically there's someone else there, and they're frightened to do anything about it because they don't want to get in trouble.
0: Exactly, and that right. happens a lot. Yeah, and so Grand Forks, it's also a pretty isolated place. North Dakota doesn't have many big cities. And so they permitted this, this medication-assisted treatment to be done remotely, so kind of over like Skype. Right. And so people could talk with doctors in other cities and be put on this, this type of medicine. So they, they're starting to hand out fentanyl test strips there and it's it's a very impressive show of support from that community.
1: I do. I was on the um, House Veterans Affairs Committee. Now I'm on the energy and Commerce where we do the health issues. Um, but I did a lot for with veterans in my first three terms. And we also, I have a rural district. And they had started doing uh, mental health, and now they are starting to do medically-assisted treatment by um, long-distance treatment over the Internet and and, uh, Skyping the interviews and the sessions, the mental health sessions. That's great. I was incredibly surprised at how successful that was. Uh But, um, you know, they can go into a vet center. It's a comfortable chair and a plant next to them and a TV in front of them, and then they're having their session. They don't have to drive two or three hours, and um, and it's much more efficient. And I was recently visiting one of our hospitals as well that's starting to help our small rural hospitals to have the expertise that they need to be able to do the medically-assisted right. treatment.
0: Yeah, and and it's also ushering in kind of a shift in mindset. Yes. And I talked to the public health uh, coordinator in Grand Forks, and he said the the fentanyl epidemic is changing the way people think about addiction. Yes. And so he said it's no longer people are thinking we got to jail our way out of the problem. We have to lock people up. It's treating addiction as a disease, trying to give people treatment. And he said it even spills over into something like alcoholism, which is for a long time treated the same way. You know, the drunk tank, you know, it's a a social issue more than a a real disease. And he said in Grand Forks that's really changed now.
1: Well, and it's incredible, too, that this has been... Uh, beginning with the the opioids uh, and then the heroin and now fentanyl, that rural America has been hit so hard. Mm -hmm. And that's a new phenomenon for most of these communities, certainly in my district that uh, has been a a big part of this. And trying to come to terms, we, for example, have uh, 2.4 percent unemployment And what that means is that you get down to it's very difficult to find talented Mm -hmm. work uh, uh, employees for the workforce. And what I've seen just recently is what they call supportive employment where one of our major employers is going to have uh, addiction specialists on hand in the company to support the people in recovery and if they feel they're going to relapse or if they need resources, and it's not just the patients themselves, but so many families have been hit by this and yeah. we have grandparents raising grandchildren, and all of the the whole society gets impacted
0: yeah um
1: and well, coming to terms with that as a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue i think yeah
0: is, yeah it's it's critical and The conclusion that I come to in my book is that we can't just address the supply side. So I went to China, I infiltrated these drug labs, I found out all sorts of horrifying things about how the Chinese government actually subsidizes the production of fentanyl and fentanyl-like drugs, fentanyl precursors, all this stuff. uh, these companies actually receive a tax rebate for exporting fentanyl and these other drugs. And there's all sorts of stuff going on right now with the trade war, and President Trump is trying to pressure Chinese President Xi into into making these changes, and these are changes that should be made. But at the same time, what I discovered is that even if we are able to control China's industry, this chemical industry exporting these drugs, the industry will likely move to a place like India, which is already starting to make fentanyl. And so my conclusion is that we need to focus on the demand side. Right. That's the only thing we can do here ourselves. And that is the name of the game with harm reduction with all these things we've been talking about.
1: Well, you made a really interesting comment about that, too, which is that... If the fentanyl dealers understand the breadth of the demand for opioids right now, and uh, Mm -hmm. starting with you told the whole story about um, the OxyContin and Oxycodone and Purdue Pharma, and you Mm -hmm. went through a lot of that in the book as well, um, and the shout out to Sam Keones and the Dreamland, yeah. which was my Bible in yeah, terms of understanding. Book. It's an incredible book to understand this all. But your point, I think, is very well taken. If we don't get a handle on helping people get well and uh, move beyond these drugs. And one of the things that's been hopeful for me is to meet so many people in recovery And to have meeting people with successful lives that are in long-term recovery that have gotten past this and and recognizing that that's a possibility, that that's a a probability. If we can use medically-assisted treatment and mental health treatment and long-term recovery and sober housing and all of these sort of this construct toward getting people to a healthy place, um, then then we don't need to worry in the sense that um, they're not going to be tempted by this lethal drug, fentanyl, coming, coming from China. Tell, yeah. You had an incredible story about the... Um, you had so much history. You could tell you're a journalist because it just had a lot of depth to the story. You had an incredible story about the opioid wars... And the sort of ironic twist that it's yeah, now the yeah. drugs that are being uh, imported to the United States. The US, Just yeah. tell that story.
0: Well, China fought a pair of opium wars in the early 19th century. And what was happening was that England was sending all of this opium into China and the Chinese people were getting addicted and the, the Chinese leaders said, we want you to stop bringing this into our country but England refused and so there were there were two wars that were fought over that now today what's going on might be described as a reverse opium war because the drugs are coming out of China and now the drugs are coming out of China and it's the people in the West who are who are using these drugs and getting addicted so you know um, talking with Chinese officials and they don't want to take responsibility, which is not surprising. They blame the U.S. for its own culture of drugs. And and that, you know, they have a good point. Um, in the U.S., for example, we use four times as many opioids as even a country like the U.K., for example. And so some recently released documents that you were alluding to referencing these big lawsuits against the opioid and pharmaceutical companies. Now, the most famous of these, of course, is Purdue Pharma, right. which was responsible for OxyContin. Yep. And they were shown to be you know, really pushing this drug, trying to make sales, even while their own internal studies showed how addictive it was. And so, and so Purdue Pharma certainly gets a lot of the blame. But from these new documents, we learned that Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, a much less well-known company, which is based in St. Louis, where I live, actually made more of these pills, these oxycodone pills, than any other company. They were responsible for something like 29 billion opioid pills. Wow. And so now we're getting to the the stage. It's it's comparable to the big tobacco lawsuits right, that from all the 90s.
1: Of these, uh, the lawsuits that are being brought by states and cities and towns, they've been consolidated in a federal court in Ohio. Actually, Oklahoma um, a court, a judge recent, recently ruled against Johnson & Johnson, right. another yeah. big company. But the judge in Ohio has said that he thinks this will be... A massive, uh, on the scale of the tobacco settlement, a, a massive settlement, and I think um, you know everyone needs to be held accountable because it, it's shocking, really, when you read the the documents that are coming out of Discovery. They knew how addictive the medications were,
0: yeah, and they there was they were some...
1: just—it's greed essentially. And and um, I have to ask you one question, just because it's been on my mind, back to China. It seems to me if you were a foreign country trying to um, threaten the well-being of our country that this would be a brilliant strategy to just hollow out America and these communities and these towns. Do you ever think of this as a, a homeland security issue? I mean, should we be looking at this in a different way in terms of our international relationships.
0: Yeah, it is definitely a national security issue when you think about it, you know, 70,000 Americans dying from these drug overdoses. And so the question which you're you're getting at is is China doing this on purpose? And a lot of people have been asking me, is China going to war essentially? With the U.S. And that's a term that that Trump and Chris Christie and others have used, war. And so the way I think about it is that it didn't start out that way. It, It started out because China wanted to encourage its chemical industries, its exports, wanted to grow the Chinese economy through all these chemical exports. The problem is that these tax breaks, these government incentives that were designed to go to legitimate chemical companies have also been going to these rogue companies these companies exporting fentanyl and fentanyl like drugs and at one point though you got to say who's in charge who's steering the ship here and one one example is last year in the midst of the trade war you know the trade war was really ramping up between the US and China and right in the middle of all this, China raised its tax rebate for exporting fentanyl from 9% to 10%. Right in the middle, at the middle of this huge opioid crisis, all these people dying, China raised this rebate. So it, it makes me wonder, is this intentional or not? There's, there's not a smoking gun, but it's certainly something to consider.
1: Well, I, I appreciate the depth of your research in this is just extraordinary. Well, thank you. Um, in the couple of minutes that we have left, is there any other one story that stands out, or any other message that you want to be sure to get across to our listeners?
0: Well, I one thing that was was so interesting to me was that that the, these new drugs, there it's it's not just drug abusers who are suffering. It's not long-time addicted users. It's not old junkies. The fentanyl can be in any powder or in any pill. So, for example, the singer Prince, he thought he was taking a legitimate narcotic pharmaceutical pain pill. It even had the, the Percocet, I believe, stamped right on it. It looked totally legitimate, but it was cut with fentanyl, wow. that's how he died. Wow! People are taking what they think is cocaine and dying. Meth, these, the unfortunate thing is that these type of drugs just aren't safe anymore. I have experimented with drugs when I was younger. But the sad thing is, I'm, maybe if I did that same thing today, I could be one of these casualties too.
1: Well, I I think, Ben, that's your message at the end of the day. It's a fascinating story. It's a chemistry, history, science, international relations, community relations, family relations. But at the end of the day, really, uh, the word needs to get out to, to every parent, to every young person, um, and certainly to every policymaker. So I, I plan to share it with my colleagues. I really appreciate the effort that you've put into it and just how serious you were, and thank you. The book is Fentanyl, Inc., and we uh, we highly recommend it.
0: Well, Thanks thank you, so you for much. all the good work that you're doing too, Congresswoman. That's You're really making a difference. Thank you. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.